If you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 39, and that's found on page 599 if you're using the Pew Bible. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. But also, if you would open up to the New Testament reading from 2 Timothy 4, and that's found on page 996. We'll briefly look at that also at the end of the sermon. So today we come to the end of the Hezekiah saga that we've been studying for the last four weeks. We also come to this end of the section in Isaiah dealing with the Assyrian problem. And the end of this section that, that takes place during the lifetime of the prophet Isaiah. Starting in chapter 40, everything looking forward is prophecies recorded intended to comfort the people who are in exile in Babylon over 150 years after the death of Isaiah. And today's chapter gives us a foreshadow of that problem, that problem that we address in the rest of the book, the problem of Babylon. And this chapter can seen as, as, as a transition between the Assyrian problem and the Babylonian problem. Let me just briefly give a, a recap of the last four chapters to give the immediate context of this chapter. So in chapter 36, we saw the Assyrian army. They had uh, defeated all the fortified cities in Jerusalem that surrounds Jerusalem, and they were about ready to invade Jerusalem. And the king of Assyria, through his representative, he taunts God's people. And basically, he's trying to, to do a psychological warfare. He's trying to get them to surrender. And then upon surrender, they would be uh, exiled. They would be relocated to different parts of the empire. They would lose their they would lose their identity as God's people. So basically what they're trying to do is get them to abandon God. Then in chapter 37, this is the highlight. Judas king Hezekiah, he shows his great faith. He and his officials, when they see this, this hopelessness, they, they are surrounded and, and by an army that has destroyed all the other nations around them. The first thing they do is they pray. They go to the temple and they pray. They bring their priests and they pray. And the Lord answers those prayers. The Lord strikes down 185,000 Assyrians supernaturally. Uh, and then the king of Assyria, he goes back, he goes into his pagan temple, and he is assassinated by his own sons. The Lord provides it. There's no way that Hezekiah can take the credit for this. And then we looked at chapter 38. And if you remember when we looked at this last week, we said that these events actually happened prior to the events described in 37. So chapter 38, it gives us really the backstory. It shows us how... Hezekiah had that great faith when he made that great stand in chapter 37. And the way the Lord gave him this great faith, and it's kind of strange, is he gave him a terminal illness. He gave us this, this illness unto death. And the reason he gave it to him is to build Hezekiah's faith. And to get Hezekiah to cry out to the Lord. And through this illness, God becomes more real to Hezekiah than the Assyrians do. And then in chapter 39, which we look at this morning, this is the last account of Hezekiah given in this book. And this is after Hezekiah's recovery from the illness. And I believe it's also after the miraculous delivery from the Assyrians that we saw in 37. And this is Hezekiah's final test. And sadly, he fails this test. And he, he really sets up the Babylonian problem that's going to be addressed uh, in the remainder of this book. So Isaiah chapter 39. Hear now the word of the Lord. At that time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, 
all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will speak to us through this word. Father, this is a a very um, frightening example. Here is a man who was a good king, who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And here is his final test. After all the, the, the battle was done, after all that you have shown him, he fails the test. And Father, I pray for each one of us here, Lord, that you will protect us, that we will finish well, we will finish strong. Father, I pray that you will speak to us through these words. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to speak through me. Open each one of our hearts, our ears to hear from you. And Father, we want to have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to be changed, changed more into his image. It's his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, I remember I was having lunch with several local pastors. And we spent some time praying for each other, sharing about our specific churches and individual needs and how we can pray for one another. And most of us, we shared current challenges, either personal or within our church, um, health issues, uh, conflict, discipline issues that may have been going on in the case, difficult situations. And our one pastor in particular, his prayer was, His greatest desire was to finish well. And I remember when he said that, I I was kind of taken aback by that statement because this wasn't really something that I thought was. He said, I want to finish well. But as I fast forward now several years, it seems very relevant because there are very few people who finish well, who finish strong. And I, I think finishing well, finishing strong, this should not only be a concern for pastors, It really should be the desire of every single Christian. Because the truth is, few of us, few people finish well. And there are many people, people that I know personally, I'm sure people that you know personally, people that are public, that have abandoned their faith. They have made a shipwreck of their faith. And this is a sad reality. And this could be due to moral failure, sexual sin, anger issues, bullying, which is far too often uh, uh, happening in churches. Uh, One of my former uh, professors actually wrote a whole book about the problems of bullying in the church. It could come from a lack of spiritual discipline. Really, failure to pray. Failure to saturate our minds with scripture, but rather looking to the world to shape our, our thinking. Failure to be in fellowship with other believers. Seeking to be the, the lone wolf Christian. I could do it all on my own. Not looking to our brothers. It could come from cowardice. Cowardice to to, to fail to stand up to the increasing hostility of Christianity and, and a biblical worldview. It could come from, simply from greed. 
Adopting a theology that appeals to the masses so that we can maximize our popularity. And what we're going to do out today is we're going to look at Hezekiah's failure to finish well. We're going to look at the causes and the consequences of his failure. And then we're going to look at our New Testament reading, again briefly, 2 Timothy 4, to see what we should do. How we could make sure that we finish our Christian life strong. So let's go. What's going on in this chapter? Well, the immediate context is that the, the, the Assyrian threat is God. God has, as he has promised, he had defended his city, Jerusalem, and he had defeated the enemy. Now, Jerusalem had done what no other city was able to do. Jerusalem stood against the Assyrians, and they soundly defeated the Assyrian army, slaughtered 185,000 of them. And how could this tiny, this seemingly insignificant city do what no other city was able to do? The nations could not understand what had happened. And they didn't know the Lord. They didn't believe in the supernatural. To them, there must be some natural explanation for what had happened. And they needed to know this explanation. So the king of the, of the up-and-coming power now, this is Babylon, sends envoys to discover Judah's secret. And as a pretense of this, this visit, he feigns concern for Hezekiah. He said, I've heard you were sick. Here's a present. I've heard you've now recovered. Now, we need to understand what exactly Babylon represents in Scripture. What is this kingdom of Scripture, of Babylon? Now, at a specific time, Babylon, as I mentioned, was the upcoming power. They weren't a superpower at the time. That was, that was Assyria. That was <clears throat> Egypt. But those kingdoms were on the decline, especially Assyria after this great loss. <clears throat> but Babylon was now on the ascent. Babylon was the, was the new powerhouse coming up there. But spiritually, spiritually, we need to understand that, that Babylon represents so much more. So they were both pagan. All these were pagans, but these were different. See, while all the other pagan nations were godless, Babylon was anti-God. So all the other nations, they worshipped their own local deities, and they considered, <clears throat> they considered Yahweh just another one of these local deities. And they set themselves up. But Babylon was different. If you remember Babylon came from Babel, as in the Tower of Babel. And you remember the, the Tower of Babel? They set themselves up in opposition to the true God. They wanted to, to, on their own, reach up to the heavens. And throughout Scripture, Babylon is seen as God's enemy. It's, just, it's described as the enemy of God's people. Again, they sought on their own to do what only God can do. They sought to be their own God. And this is the essence. This is the essence of the anti-world God worldview. This is the, the anti-God worldview. This is what Babylon represents in Scripture. And the, the a previous sermon that I preached on this book of Isaiah, we specifically looked at the physical and the spiritual Babylon. And we saw how throughout Scripture, Babylon represents those who oppose the living God. So in this chapter now, we see Babylon the quintessential enemy of God's people, coming to God's city, Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, the king of God's people, the one man who was charged by Yahweh himself to lead and defend God's people from their enemies. How does Hezekiah to react to this visit from God's enemies? Well, verse 2 says that Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. Welcomed them gladly. Why would 
God's king welcome God's enemies into God's city. I mean, it's one thing if you're, if you're negotiating with enemies, right? To, to, to quote the Godfather, you keep your, your friends close, but you keep your enemies closer. But I don't think that's what they're doing. I don't think that's what Hezekiah is doing. Because what Hezekiah does, he shows them all his wealth. He shows them all his armory, all his weapons. Everything else in his realm, he shows to them. You don't show your enemies all your assets. You don't give your enemies information that they'll use to destroy you. But notice what Hezekiah did not tell his enemy. He did not tell them really the one thing that he should have told them. He did not tell them the real reason why he was healed. He did not tell them the real reason Jerusalem stood against Assyria when every other city they invaded fell. He did not tell them the very thing that Hezekiah himself prayed in chapter 37 when he was surrounded by the Assyrians. If you just turn back a a page or two in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 37. Look at chapter 37, verse 20. This is really Hezekiah's finest moment. This is when he had this bold and this desperate prayer when he's surrounded by 185,000 enemy soldiers facing almost certain death. Look at what he prays. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. See, this was the reason. This was the reason the Lord spared Jerusalem. It was not because of the righteousness of the people of Jerusalem. It was not because of the eloquence of Hezekiah's prayer. It was so that all the nations of the earth may know that Yahweh alone is the Lord. It was for God's glory alone. And this is the one thing. The one thing that Hezekiah should have told them that he does not tell them. So why does Hezekiah fail to tell them? Why does Hezekiah fail to give God the glory? Why does Hezekiah show them all the state secrets of the kingdom, but he doesn't tell them the one thing that makes Judah unique in all the kingdoms of the earth, and the only thing, the only thing that could possibly bring unity among all these kingdoms? Well, to answer this, I'm going to quote Jack Herndon. This is the, the answer that Jack will give whenever God's people fail to remain faithful to God and when facing a hostile and unbelieving world. And what Jack says is they wanted a seat at the cool kids' table. Remember, Jack? They wanted a seat at the cool kids' table. See, this is Hezekiah's motivation. Hezekiah wanted a seat at the cool kids' table. Hezekiah wanted to be seen as a player. He wanted to be respected by the world. He wanted to be seen as this great king, as a, as a mighty empire. And Hezekiah hoped to impress Babylon, right? They were the up-and-coming power. So he wanted to show all his wealth. He wanted to show all his power, which really wasn't much. And perhaps he even wanted to partner with them. Right now that, now that the big boys are gone, maybe, maybe it could be Judah and, and Babylon. They could be the, the, the big boys on the block. That's what he's thinking. But again, these are God's enemies, You can't make alliances with God's enemies. You can't seek partnerships with God's enemies. This is exceedingly wicked. And this is what Hezekiah was doing. The Second Chronicles parallel of this account gives a little bit more information to explain what's going on. In Second Chronicles 32, uh, verse 31, we read, it says, And so the matter of the envoys of the princes of, of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. See, Hezekiah had the perfect opportunity 
to testify about the Lord. See, the pretense that the Babylonians came to visit was to inquire about the sign. You remember the sign? The sign that had been done when Hezekiah was healed. So what was this sign? Remember, the, the, the sign came, they came because Hezekiah's illness and his recovery. So what was the sign that Hezekiah had been healed? Well, we see this in chapter 38, verse 7. In verse 8, it said that the sun would go back 10 steps on the dial. So basically, God had turned back time. And this was done by God and could only be explained as a miracle done by God. But instead of testifying about God's power, Hezekiah shows the Babylonians all of his power, all of his wealth. And Chronicles tells us that God left Hezekiah to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. See, we see what was in Hezekiah's heart now. And it wasn't God. It was pride. Notice Hezekiah did not pray when the envoys come. He didn't pray. He didn't seek the Lord's advice. He didn't summon Isaiah and say, you know, what should I tell them? He simply did what he wanted to do. He responded in his own strength and, and his own wisdom. And I think this is what it means when it said that God left Hezekiah to himself. I think it means that God took away this prayer reflex that we looked at. That first response that we saw Hezekiah, when Hezekiah was, was so great, his, his strongest, his, his boldest and finest hour is when he would immediately come to the Lord when he was in trouble. But now he's not in trouble anymore. Now he feels confident. Now the threat is gone. He really didn't fear the Babylonians. Right? They were nowhere near as powerful as the Assyrians, and the Assyrians were just defeated. So he saw no threat from the Babylonians. He saw them as peers. He saw them as partners that he was trying to impress. He felt he had all the things under control. But before, when he, was, when he was sick and about to die, he cries out to the Lord. When his city was surrounded by the Assyrians, he cries out to the Lord. But now all is good. Now he has everything under control. He's, I got this, God. There's no need for me to bother you. Big mistake. See, things are going well. He doesn't desperately need God. He, he can take it on his own from here. He can implement his own plans now that he has a seat at the cool kids' table. And here we see the number one reason why Christians do not finish well. And we're going to talk about people who truly know the Lord, not false believers. We'll look at that in a moment with false believers. But the reason Hezekiah did not finish well, and the reason why I think most Christians do not finish well, is because of their success. It was because of Hezekiah's past faithfulness God had delivered Hezekiah from his illness. God had delivered Jerusalem from the Assyrian threat. And now the urgent need for God, at least in Hezekiah's mind, this urgent need was gone. See, before this, Hezekiah needed God. And Hezekiah was close to God. And Hezekiah needed God. Remember when he first ascended to the throne? A month after he was, he was king, he had to combat this, this rampant idolatry and neglect, the utter neglect of the temple and the sacrificial system that, that occurred under his father, King Ahaz. And during this time, he needed God. He stayed close to God. He was in prayer because this was, a, this was a big effort that he had to undertake. And he was successful. And Hezekiah needed God when he faced this life-threatening illness. He was going to die. There was nothing he could do. So he prays desperately, prays to the Lord. He pleaded. He pleaded the promises of the, of the Mosaic Covenant. And God answered these prayers. And he gave him 15 more years of life. 
Hezekiah needed God when Jerusalem was under was surrounded by the Assyrian army and facing almost certain annihilation. He cries out to the Lord in a bold and a desperate prayer, and God answers those prayers, and he sends the angel to slay 185,000 Assyrians. But now, my friends, the threat is gone. Now times are good. Now Hezekiah's moments on the big stage has come. And now he faces a temptation. A temptation to be significant in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of God's enemies. And that is the temptation that we all face. To be a world player. To be a big shot. And this desire leads to his downfall. It leads to his failure to finish well. And I think this is the most common reason why a believer fails to finish well. Because of success, because of good times, because of prosperity, much of which was the result of past faithfulness. And because forgetting our continual dependence upon the Lord. Dependence not only for the difficult times, but dependence for all times. But there's another reason, another, I think a less common reason for believers to stumble. And they would stumble maybe for a time, but ultimately I believe that this reason will actually draw them back to God. However, this second reason I'm going to mention will expose false believers, will expose those who never trusted God in the first place. And the second reason is trial. It's difficulty. It's pain. It's bad time. It's the opposite of success. See, Hezekiah was a true believer, and he was actually at his best during times of trial. And because it was then that he trusted God. His problem was during the good times when he forgot that he still needed God during the good times as he needed in the bad times. But there are others in Scripture that we see. I just reminded of it when we watched the play Ruth. Ruth during trial. She lost her faith, at least temporarily during that time. Another one is the Apostle Peter. Right? When, on the night when Jesus was arrested. And, and uh, he stumbled under the trial. He denied his Lord. But the stumble was not permanent. It was short-lived. Immediately after Peter denied the Lord and he heard the, the rooster crow, it reminded him of Jesus' prophecy, he, he came to himself and he, he immediately wept bitterly and convicted of his sin. See, trial can cause a time of confusion. It can come a, a time of great distress among true believers. And it may even lead them, like with Ruth and Peter, or like Naomi and, and Peter, uh, to uh, lead them temporarily from a failure to, to draw close to God. But ultimately, ultimately the trial draws them closer to God. Ultimately, the trial strengthens their faith, the strength of a true believer. See, it will not be pleasant, but trial will be edifying for the believer. The true believer will exit a trial with a stronger faith, more sanctified and more useful to kingdom work than when he entered the trial. It's, it's, it's a similar like with exercise. Physical exercise, which can be quite painful and not pleasant, is essential to strengthen our physical body. Well, so too are trials, which are not pleasant and often quite painful. They're essential to build our faith and build our usefulness for the kingdom of God. As we discussed last week, <clears throat> when, the, when a true believer is in the midst of a trial, he can cling to three facts, three facts that are, are guaranteed to us by God's word in scripture. And the first thing that he can cling to, he can cling to the fact that God is using the trial, whatever trial you're going through, he is using it for the good of the believer and he is using it for his own glory. This is guaranteed. We see this in Romans 8, 28. 
The second thing the believer can cling to is the fact that Christ himself walks with us through the trial. He sustains us during our time of trial. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. This trial cannot separate us from Christ, as we see in Romans 8, 37 and following. And the third thing, the third thing that we can cling to as a believer is the fact that ultimately, when our work in this world is done, Christ himself will come and take us to be home with him. And we will be with him, as John 14, 1 through 4 tells us. And while it's natural for us to fear and seek to avoid these painful times, the truth is, for the believer, these trials are the foundry furnace that forges God-glorifying and soul-satisfying faith. And without this intimacy with God experienced during these times of trial, true and enduring joy is not possible. However, these trials have a second purpose. The first purpose is to strengthen the faith of the believer and to draw the believer into a deeper and more intimate reliance on the Lord. But the second purpose of these trials is to expose the false faith and the hypocrisy of the unbeliever. See, the fact is, at this time and in this country, especially here in the Bible Belt, there are many social and carnal benefits of being a Christian. And sadly, many people see Christianity simply as a cultural convention. The people have no affection for the God of the Bible. They have no love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Their only interest in Christianity is what they can get out of it. Some people even see Christianity and, and a Christian ministry as a, as a means to a higher end. It could be a, a way of making business contacts, of seeing as being seen as a good person, uh, seeking to profit off of Christian business. We see certain podcasters and musicians that appeal to Christians. They make money from promoting Christian ideas. But when the culture changes, when biblical Christianity is no longer popular, or a particular aspect of Christianity is not popular. <clears throat> you see these people, and you see all the time, abandoning biblical Christianity. For them, it was never about Christianity. It was always about what Christianity could do for them. And this, I think, is the main reason I see professing uh, Christians failing to finish well. It's because they never were Christians. As First John 2.19 tells us, they went out from us because they never were of us. See, the difficulty, the, the trial, the unpopularity of Christianity exposes their hypocrisy. It exposes the fact that they are not true Christians. And for many of these people, faith is just a way to make a buck. And as the cultural values change, they have to modify their professed beliefs in order to maximize their profit. It's simply business. And these people have no assurance they have no assurance that they belong to the Lord. No assurance that they are born again. They are most likely lost and need the gospel of grace. These people need to, to repent and receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone. Not a cultural benefits of Christ, but Christ alone as he is presented in the gospel. And this is very scary and dangerous because many of these people, maybe the person himself may be deceived and think that they are actually a Christian because they have some association with Christians at some level. Now, Hezekiah, Hezekiah is a true believer. And his failure to finish well doesn't display that he's not a believer or, or cause him to lose his salvation. But what it does do, and what he does lose, is his usefulness to God. It costs him his usefulness to God. He loses effectiveness as God's servant. 
And he loses the joy, the joy of serving God and bringing him glory. So what is the cost? What is the physical cost of Hezekiah's failure? Well, in the short run, during the remainder of his life, the, the cost may have been minimal, may not have even been noticeable. But the long-run cost, long-run cost of Hezekiah's failure to finish well is horrific. Isaiah declares to, to Hezekiah the Lord's judgment on his failure. He says in verses 6 and 7, is behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. See, Hezekiah's unfaithful and prideful actions set in motion the events that would lead to the eventual downfall of Jerusalem. The very thing that he feared, the very thing that that God had delivered them from, this was what was going to take place. Jerusalem would fall, not to the Assyrians, but now to the Babylonians. God's people would be exiled. His own descendants would be made eunuchs and serve in the palace of the king of Babylon. I mean, just think of this. If If your descendants are made eunuchs, it means you will not have future descendants. It means your line will die out. And this was considered the the greatest shame for a Jewish culture, not to have descendants. But perhaps most chilling in this entire account is Hezekiah's response in verse 8 where he says, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. What callousness. What callousness that Hezekiah seems completely unconcerned with the fate of the people he's called to rule and the misery and the harm that his foolishness will bring on his own descendants, the shame that will bring on his own family line. I I wonder if this lack of concern past his death, this is the the first sign of the results of, 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 of his failure to finish well. I knew a man years ago who had, he was quite older than his, his daughter, but he spoiled his daughter and he constantly bailed her out when she was in trouble. He, he failed to, to teach her self-discipline and responsibility. And I remember when he was confronted with this, the person says, what will happen? You know, you're an old man. What will happen when you're no longer here to bail her out? And the man's response was, I don't care. I'll be dead. He didn't love his daughter. He was doing what was easy for himself. And this is the attitude that we see in Hezekiah. And it's hard to believe that a soul regenerated by the Holy Spirit could have such a, a hard heart toward his people and to his own descendants. And not only did Hezekiah not care what happened after he died, I think he stopped caring at this point at this point in his life. I think those 15 years that the Lord granted him, that these were just wasted years. See, we know that during this time, Hezekiah's heir to the throne, Manasseh, was born. Scripture tells us that Manasseh was only 12 years old when Hezekiah died. So if Hezekiah was given this extra 15 years... Manasseh was born during those 15 years. Now, did Hezekiah diligently use these 12 years to prepare Manasseh to be king? Did he teach Manasseh the ways of the Lord? Did he instill in his son the the zeal for the temple and the abhorrence of idolatry that marked Hezekiah's early reign? Remember, the first month, the first month he was king, he restored the temple. He removed the high places. He eliminated pagan worship in Judah. Did Hezekiah pass this same zeal on to his son? Sadly, no. Listen to this horrific description of Manasseh's reign 
from the first six verses of 2 Kings 21. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He was as bad as everyone else. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars to Baal and made Asher as king, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Listen to this. He built altars in the house of the Lord. In the temple, he built altars to, the, to pagan gods in the temple. He built altars to the hosts of heaven in the courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his own sons as an offering and used fortune tellers and omens and dealt mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And this is the tragic reality of Hezekiah's failure to finish well. It basically undid all the good that he did in his life. Manasseh undid all of Hezekiah's reforms. And the exile that the people escaped under Assyria, they would experience again under the Babylonians. There was a tremendous cost to ourselves and to those around us for our failure to finish well. And this chapter, this closing incident in the life of one of, one of Judah's most faithful kings, I think this serves as a sober reminder to all of us. See, if someone like Hezekiah, someone of the faith of Hezekiah could fail to finish well and lead to such catastrophic consequences to his family and to his nation, this should get our attention because it could happen to any one of us sitting here. Any one of us could fail. But I don't want to end here. I don't want to end with a simple warning that we that this could happen to us. I want us to show us, I, I want us to look at, at the final words of a man who did finish well. A man who, who fought the good fight. Who finished the race. Who kept the faith. So if you would please just turn to your Bibles. We're going to briefly look at 2 Timothy 4. That's found on page 996, again, Fusion and Pew Bible. And these are the final words of Paul to Timothy. His faithful disciple Timothy. And, and they're really a charge. A charge to Timothy. And these words are often used during an ordination service as a, as a charge to a new elder or a new pastor. But I think this is really a charge, not just to an elder, not just to a pastor, but to every single Christian. And in this charge, we are shown, I think, how we can finish well. We are given both the attitude and the basis of our ability to finish well. And the foundation of our ability to finish well is none other than Jesus Christ. But the way we know Christ and abide in Christ is through his word and I want you to look two verses back at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This gives us a truth about God's word. And it shows us how this is our most effective tool in finishing well. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then in chapter 4, we're given the charge. And how are we to use this word? Well, we see in chapter, in, in verse 2, the charge is preach the word. Now you can see why this is used for, for, for pastors and preachers and ministers. But this is not limited to those who have been ordained and who officially preach in the church. See, this word preach also can mean proclaim, herald, to function. It, it, see, it's not the function solely of the, of the uh, preacher. 
All Christians, all creatures are to proclaim God's word. All creatures, all, all Christians are to be heralds. We are to proclaim God's word in season and out of season. What this means is we are to proclaim God's word when times are good, when people are going to receive it, and when times are bad, when people are, are going to hate you for proclaiming the word. We are still to proclaim God's word in, uh, in any situation. And this is what Hezekiah failed to do. He clung to God's word when times were bad, but when times were good, he didn't think he needed it anymore. And then there are others, when times are good, yeah, we'll preach God's word, but when there's, when there's difficulty, when there's opposition, then I will change, then I will compromise. We have to trust him, whether in season or out of season. We need to trust Christ. We need to cling to his word. We need to faithfully proclaim this word. My friends, this is our only safeguard. This is our only safeguard that can ensure that each one of us will finish well as Christians. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray for myself. I pray for each one here. Lord, that you will give us the ability to finish well. Father, there are so many things opposing us. There are good times and bad times that oppose us. And each one of us is different. Some of us can stand during the the hard times, but will fall during the good times. And some of us the opposite. So, Father, you know each one of us. And I pray, Father, that you will give us that strength. You will give us that perspective that we will rest on your word. And that each one of us will finish well. We pray it all in Jesus' name.